The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you, Lord. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, over the centuries, one of the great letdowns of the church has been its failure to adequately address the subject of sex. In the best cases, this has probably been out of some sense of propriety or modesty. While in its worst cases, this has stemmed from some distorted idea that sex is something inherently dirty or evil. But whatever the reason... Most Christians have been left to learn about sex, either directly or indirectly, from the secular culture. A culture that is increasingly confused about the subject. So today, with the help of Jesus, we're going to talk about sex as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, as in weeks past, I'll be drawing heavily on Dallas Willard, but also a bit from Timothy Timothy Keller, who's familiar to many of you. So this morning, our focus will be on the second paragraph of our gospel passage, where Jesus begins by saying, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Here, in verse 27, Jesus quotes the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. But... But we need to take a moment to clarify what adultery is. The biblical definition of adultery not only includes extramarital affairs, but also fornication for the unmarried. In other words, it's got to, to restate the law positively, it's God's intention that sex occur only within the covenant of marriage. But after citing the seventh commandment, Jesus continues on. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, here Jesus is doing something very similar to what we saw him doing last week when we looked at the first paragraph from today's gospel passage, right? You'll recall that that then we talked about how most people in Jesus' day 
believed that as long as they obeyed that sixth commandment of not murdering anyone, as long as they obeyed that, they believed they could be safe in assuming that they didn't really cause any serious harm to others. But Jesus made quick work of this delusion when he went beyond the sixth commandment by asserting that anger and contempt are equally serious. Well, with the section we're looking at today, Jesus is again exposing exposing here a similarly myopic view of the adultery commandment, a a view among the people of, of his day that was very narrow. As Willard says, here Jesus was confronted with the multitudes of men who thought of themselves as good. He was confronted with multitudes of men who thought of themselves as right in their sexual life simply because they did not do the specific thing forbidden by the commandment, the adulterous act. And yet these same people would follow a woman with their eyes and fantasize about what it would be like to be with her. Now we all know about this kind of activity Because every one of us has done it at some point along the way, both men and women. Just as with the people Jesus is speaking to, plenty of us may manage to not commit physical adultery, but not many of us can say we haven't ever looked at another person with lustful intent. Why does Jesus elevate this fantasized sexual desire to the level of adultery? Well, because as as Willard points out, whenever we do this, this fantasized sexual desire, all all of the elements of a genuine act of adultery are present other than the physical act itself. All of the heart elements are there. So that usually the only thing lacking for actually acting on that is the occasion. So to make this clear, what Willard's suggesting is that anyone who looks on another person with lustful intent would actually do it, would actually commit the physical adultery act if only the occasion and circumstances were right. That's the reason Jesus calls it adultery in the heart. Well, I got to thinking about this this week and wondering, is, is that really true? I mean, is it really true that whenever a person looks on another with lustful intent, it means that under the right occasion and circumstances, they would actually commit physical adultery? Is that true? Is, is that what Jesus is saying? I think it is. I think Willard's right about this. Because just think for a second about a time that you have looked on a person in this way. And then hypothetically imagine that you had no religious convictions that could be violated. You had no spouse whose heart would be broken. You had no family that could potentially be torn apart by this action. And you you had no sense of the possible consequences that could come to you for this action. And then imagine that that person you lusted after propositioned you. If all of those circumstances were the case, what would possibly restrain you from the act? In those circumstances, with your heart already there, 
everyone would follow through with the physical act of adultery. This is why Jesus calls fantasized sexual desire adultery in the heart. But make no mistake, don't misunderstand Jesus here. Physical, actual physical adultery is still worse than lust. Just like murder is still worse than anger and contempt. But the reason Jesus is making this point is because just like most people minimize the damaging effects of anger and contempt, most people also minimize the damaging effects of lust. And they do this primarily because they believe the lie that lust is a private act. They believe the lie that that lust is a private act. Well, this couldn't be further from the truth. Lust is never a private act. As Willard says, just like we usually can't hide it when we're filled with anger and contempt, so when we're possessed by fantasizing visual lust, will it it make its presence known in one way or another? It'll be detectable in both our body language and our expressions. And thus, lust ends up affecting everyone in that social situation. Because lust is always acted out to some degree. It can never be kept simply as a private reality, even if we delude ourselves into thinking it can be. This assertion that just the lustful look is still a public act with public effects explains the epidemic of sexual harassment that emerged once our society finally started identifying it for what it is. When unwelcome looks or inappropriate comments or unwanted advances occur, the person subjected to it and everyone else nearby has to deal with it. Often by constant planning and managing to avoid more of it. I bet if I took a poll, especially of the women here in this room, I bet every one of them would admit to having to deal with situations of inappropriate comments or unwanted advances from individuals that have required them to engage in intentional planning to protect themselves from continued harassment. And most of the time, such harassment never gets confronted or called out for what it is. People just move on. So what do we do? If fantasized sexual desire or lust is as damaging as Jesus says it is, and if we can't prevent it from manifesting in some outward ways, if it's in our hearts, what can we do then to overcome it? Well, if we continue on in our passage, we may be surprised with what we find. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Oh, okay, Jesus. No problem. Let me go grab my knife. Deal with this problem real quick. 
Now, while I'm sure that, that we can all agree it would be better to lose one of our members than for our whole body to go into hell, I mean, I don't think we have to be convinced about that, we must not mistake this as a prescription for how to deal with the problem of lust. That's not what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says, if your, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Or if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He is not prescribing here a solution for lust. To the contrary, actually. If we consider the context of the Sermon of the Mount, which is so important as we've learned, it's obvious that what Jesus is doing here, he is further mocking how the religious leaders of his day tried to obtain righteousness by their own effort. Jesus is saying that if they, if they think simply obeying laws would make them righteous, then cutting off their hand or gouging out their eye would make it possible to uh, keep from doing the acts that the law forbids. After all, it's awfully hard to look on a woman with the intention of lust when you've gouged your eyes out. right? And if you sufficiently dismember yourself, it makes it awfully hard to commit adultery. But as Willard says... Far from suggesting that any advantage before God could actually be gained in this way by gouging or cutting off. Jesus is teaching in this passage, what he's teaching is exactly the opposite. Because, as Willard rather graphically points out, even a person who has been reduced or reduced themselves to a mutilated stump of a person could still have a wicked heart, couldn't they? In other words, cutting everything off doesn't work. For somebody to take verses 29 or 30 as prescriptive would simply be to clean the outside of the cup. For even without eyes and hands, one can still be filled with lust on the inside. So what good is it to cut them off? Now if we truly want to overcome lust... We need to apply the lessons Jesus has already taught us in the earlier parts of the Sermon on the Mount and focus on an approach that will clean us, what? From the inside out. But to understand how to do this, how to be clean on the inside in regard to lust, I think we need to take a step back and just take a moment to consider what sex is really about. You see, the reason God has placed the boundary of marriage around sex is because in addition to being procreative, sex is intended to be a celebration of intimacy between two souls. A celebration of intimacy between two souls. Now, the word intimacy is widely misunderstood today. For many people, just hearing the word intimacy calls up sexual connotations, right? But that's not what we're talking about. When, when two people experience intimacy, what that means is they are connected in such a way that they are known, loved, and accepted as they truly are by the other. 
as opposed to having to hide parts of themselves or pretending to be someone they're not. That's what intimacy is. When you are real with the other person and can be fully accepted and you don't have to pretend to be somebody else or hide this part of your heart. Well, because we are all sinful people, we cannot possibly endure such vulnerability of being fully transparent with another person unless they have made a covenant with us that says, I am going to stick with you forever, no matter what. We need that covenant to be able to be truly vulnerable like that. Indeed, Tim Keller notes that in relationships of cohabitation, you know, unmarried couples living together, which is all the rage these days, Keller notes that that in that situation, the two parties can never be fully real with one another. Precisely because there is no lifelong commitment. Instead... They have to continually be working to impress one another. Which means to some degree they must always hide part of themselves or pretend to be somebody whom they really aren't. Why? They have to keep trying to impress one another because if one party in that that partnership ever ceases to be impressed since there's no commitment, there's always the risk their partner will just move on. In hopes of finding somebody who's more impressive. So you've got to always be on your game. Can't ever let your guard fully down. Thus, the level of true relational intimacy unmarries, unmarried couples can ever hope to enjoy is actually very limited. It's very limited, their hope for true relational intimacy. Only within the covenant of marriage, when that element of potential rejection has been taken off the table, only then can one begin to feel free to to be fully vulnerable with their partner. And believe it or not, that, that kind of intimacy, relational and emotional intimacy, that is the true desire of our hearts, every one of us, not sexual intimacy. Now, I know some guys out here may be thinking, yeah, right, John. (laughs) And I'm not saying that sex is undesirable. I'm not saying that sex cannot be satisfying. Not at all. But as Willard says, the truly erotic is the mingling of souls that is achieved in relational and emotional intimacy. But the problem is that attaining this sort of intimacy is not easy. As Willard says, our society's profound misunderstanding of the erotic, namely the belief that sexual intimacy has the greatest potential to satisfy us, that actually represents the inability of humans in today's society to attain relational and emotional intimacy. It exposes their inability to give themselves to another and receive another in abiding faithfulness, so they just go the sex direction. You see, something about our sinful condition makes us fear 
relational intimacy. It, it leads us to protect ourselves from this type of vulnerability, perhaps more than anything. So what this means is that even though the covenant of marriage provides the framework for enjoying this type of intimacy, relational and emotional intimacy, unfortunately, that doesn't mean that married couples necessarily experience it to any great degree. Unfortunately. And this is the real problem. Right? Our inability to connect intimately in a, in a relational and emotional way is the real problem because when we're unable to achieve that that's when lust and adultery rear their ugly heads that's when those become issues as Willard says intimacy is a spiritual hunger of our human souls and we can't escape that hunger so when we find ourselves caught up in fantasized sexual desire or lust, we need to understand what's going on. We need to understand that we are really trying to meet that deep need for intimacy. Not sexual intimacy, but relational intimacy. So as Willard says, we keep hammering the sex button in hope that, that a little intimacy might finally dribble out, but we do it in vain. Because you see, when sex is the pinnacle for us, it will never fully satisfy. It can't satiate in itself that need for relational intimacy. And we see this, for example, when men or women look at pornography. Right? It only leaves them further frustrated. Why? Because their soul doesn't actually want sex as much as it wants intimacy. And pornography doesn't provide that. The hookup culture has also become huge these days. But it leaves its participants feeling only empty and used. Why? Because what their souls are really looking for isn't actually sexual connection. So much as emotional and relational connection with another human being. Even in marriage, if there is little relational and emotional intimacy, sex will never make up for this. It can't fix it. So what are we to do? Well, I'm going to br briefly suggest four things. I'm not usually one of those preachers who gives, you know, two steps to overcoming lust or two steps to a healthier marriage, but... But that's exactly what I'm going to do today. Um, and we'll start with overcoming lust. When it comes to overcoming lust, first of all, we need to understand that sexual desire is not wrong. Sexual desire is not wrong. Just like God designed us with the ability to feel anger, He also designed us to experience sexual desire. We are sexual beings. Right? And that's not wrong. Right? Just like anger, the feeling of anger itself isn't wrong. It's what you do with it that matters. Right? If you look at verse 28 in your bulletin, taken from the ESV translation, it, it gets this right. It reports Jesus as saying, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. But you see, some of the, some of the pop, most popular Bible translations actually butcher this verse. 
Right? For example, the NRSV says, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Instead of lustful intent, it just says lust. The New Living Translation says, Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to these translations, if we even look at another person and the thought even crosses our mind, we're already hosed. Well, good luck with that. If we're sinning just because something pops into our mind, we might as well just pack it up and go home because the deck is unfairly stacked against us as believers. That's like saying you can never feel the emotion of anger. No. The NIV kind of does this too. It's, It's ambiguous. It says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's kind of... Splitting the baby there. But sexual temptation, that's merely having a lustful thought about someone you're not married to or experiencing the desire for sex with that person. Just feeling, just feeling that in yourself. That in and of itself is not sin, you see. What matters is what we do with that thought or desire when it bubbles up. Whether we indulge it or surrender it to God. I mean, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, according to Hebrews, right? Which means Jesus undoubtedly, think about it, Jesus undoubtedly experienced the thought or desire for sex with someone. Undoubtedly. Or else Hebrews is lying to us. Yet the same verse in Hebrews says he was without sin, which means he never chose to dwell on that thought. He never chose to indulge that desire, either mentally or physically. And so he was without sin. So that's the first thing. Understanding that sexual desire in itself is not wrong. It's what we do with it. The second is, the second if we want to overcome lust, if we want to do this, we have to focus on the inside of the cup. Inside of our cup. Not just controlling circumstances on the outside. I'm sure we're all aware of the practice in Islamic cultures of requiring the females to cover themselves in order to prevent men from lusting after them, right? And I don't mean disrespect, but that's just cleaning the outside of the cup, right? When what those men really need, what those men really need is for their hearts to be rid of that compulsion, even the story we read today about Joseph fleeing Potiphar's wife, you'll hear a lot of people make the, that their strategy in any situation that triggers lust. And, and certainly, every one of us are going to be confronted with situations where we need to do the exact thing Joseph did, which is run. Get the heck out of there, right? But, but in order to have the will to do that in the heat of the moment... To flee the opportunity and occasion when it's presented to us. We've got to have a heart that's free of lust. Or else we're going to say, I'm sticking around. Right? Joseph only fled because his heart truly did not will. Did not want to do what Potiphar's wife was inviting him to do. Right? That's what allowed him to flee. So his heart was right. Right? 
So if we want to overcome lust, in addition to surrendering lustful temptations as they come up, we must begin to look to God to meet our needs for intimacy. That's how we clean the inside of the cup. We must begin to look to God to meet our needs for intimacy. Let me tell you, there is not a spouse out there who is capable of fully meeting their partner's relational needs. Apart from God, right? Nobody can do it. It's too much. Apart from God, it's going to be a disaster. As Willard says, he says, the, the intimacy of our souls long for can only come within the framework of living faithfully within the kingdom of God, which we've already learned is living in relationship with Him under His power. But what does that mean? Well, well, first of all, no one can love us like God can. Nobody. If we want to feel known, loved, and accepted, no one can do this like God can. Am I right? But that doesn't mean God will meet all of our needs for intimacy directly himself. It doesn't mean we don't need a relationship with any other human being. God can also choose to meet these needs through our marriage relationship, through other family relationships, through friendships, right? Of course, each relationship has its own boundaries of appropriateness, right? Particularly around issues of sexuality, but other boundaries as well. But God, God can meet it for us in a variety of ways. It's not all just this direct line with God of Him, him Himself only filling our cup. God can meet our needs through relationships. He's sovereign over all that. It reminds me of the growing number of Christians out there who identify as homosexuals, but who choose to be celibate out of faithfulness to God. Uh, These are figures like Wesley Hill and Eve Tushnet. Uh, You can Google them on the internet if you want to know about their stories. A lot of these people who have homosexual impulses, but know that that's not God's design... They're celibate, but they work on developing what they call spiritual friendships, right? And one reason God can meet their relational needs non-sexually through those, through those relationships is because true relational intimacy actually satisfies our souls more than sexual intimacy does, right? Because they don't have to have the sexual intimacy to be fil- fulfilled, Right? The true desire of their hearts, that relational intimacy, and God can meet that, right, non-sexually. And if that wasn't true, by the way, Jesus lived non, you know, without acting out sexually his whole life and was fully fulfilled. So don't believe what our culture says, that true fulfillment is being able to exercise every sexual desire and impulse I have. Boy, is that chaos. I say is, because it is currently chaos, if you haven't noticed, right? But ultimately, trusting God to meet our relational needs, right? our needs for intimacy through relationship with Him and whatever combination of relationships in our lives He deems best, that will lead us to have this deep need for intimacy much more satisfied than if we try to attain it on our own. Because what happens, for example, if your spouse gets sick or dies and you've relied on them for all of your relational intimacy? 
Instead of, looking, instead of trusting that God's in control of that. You're up a creek. Right? But if you, if you can trust God, if you've trusted God, yeah, you're going to experience loss or grief when that happens. But we can trust that over time, God will reorient how our relational needs are met through other relationships. It's beautiful. So if we desire to overcome lust, the keys are surrendering temptation to God plus looking to Him to meet our relational needs for intimacy. And lastly, I want to talk about if we want our marriage to be healthier. Two things here. If we want our marriage to be healthier, first, we need to deal with anger and contempt before we try to deal with the sexual stuff. Willard points out that it's no coincidence that Jesus chooses to address anger and contempt in his Sermon on the Mount before addressing lust and sexual intimacy. Why? Because anger and contempt will totally destroy the unique covenantal intimacy of marriage. If there's anger and contempt in a marriage, there won't be much intimacy relationally. Willard says, how many marriage unions are fatally undermined because of contempt that one mate has for the other? Sometimes it's for their mate's body. Sometimes it's for their mind or their talents or their family or for something he or she has done. It's a familiar story and these wounds seldom heal but instead fester and grow. And to make it worse, when a couple has physical intimacy under such contempt-filled conditions, usually that sexual intimacy will only deepen the wounds of anger and contempt. Perhaps some of us here have experienced that. So that's the first thing. Deal with anger and contempt before the sexual stuff. The second thing we have to understand is that within a marriage, relational intimacy will lead to healthier sex, but it's not necessarily the other way around. Sex will not necessarily create true relational intimacy. I'll say that again. Relational intimacy will lead to healthier sex between a couple. But sex will not necessarily create true relational intimacy. And this is one place where I disagree with author Tim Keller. In chapter 8 of his outstanding book, The Meaning of Marriage, Keller compares the place of sex in a marriage to the role of oil in an engine. He says, with that analogy, that regular sex keeps a marriage running smoothly, like oil keeps an engine running smoothly. But the problem with that mentality is that it makes sex the foundation, the the necessary ingredient for a healthy marriage. When in truth, relational and emotional intimacy are the foundation for a healthy marriage. Instead, sex is intended to be a way to celebrate relational and emotional intimacy, not the other way around. When a couple is connected relationally and emotionally, then sex can be a wonderful celebration of that. But sex doesn't necessarily bring relational and emotional intimacy. As we've just mentioned earlier, under anger and contempt, it does the exact opposite. So this is a lot. 
In closing, this morning we should hear this passage on adultery and lust actually as tremendously good news. Jesus brings this subject up because he's offering us a path to a more godly approach to sex. To a fuller and more biblical understanding of intimacy. And to, he's offering us a path to healthier marriages. If we're only willing to live under the power of his kingdom and submit to his boundaries for this, untold blessings await us in all of these areas. Amen.